0: hey this is robbie shaw this is patrick bosley
1: and i'm sam hansen
0: and this is champagne problems where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking this is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol So we are back in the studio with a great topic today that's very close to our hearts, our youth. We call this episode, Do It For The Kids.
1: You know, parents just want to know, how do we talk to our kids about this? How is it impacting our kids? And Patrick, I'd love to hear just a little bit about where all of that passion comes in for you.
2: One of the reasons that this kind of, you know, drives my passion around pretty much the most of the work that I do is because I, you know, I I struggled with this uh, as an adolescent, you know, like I started drinking at 13, was dependent on um, opioids by the time I was 14. I, I never had anybody talk to me about substance use when I was a kid, other than um, you know, we would have those dare people come into school, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, we, sometimes we had some some people from the police department come in. Just say no. And, yeah, just yeah. Say just no. say no. You and, must and, have not signed the pledge. Yeah. Oh no, I signed the <laughs> pledge. I actually won a, an art competition in fourth grade for the best no smoking sign, <laughs> and, and they put it on display in the mint museum. And I think I was the first kid in my class that had ever smoked a cigarette. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. But this is, you know, this is really actually driven my my career and and my passion is, is just the fact that families do not know what to do. They don't know how to start the conversations. They don't know what to talk about. They don't know what questions to ask. It's just a, you know, it's a, it's a really uncomfortable topic. And it's something, you know, that the kids are, are getting exposed to ha- at a younger and younger age. And the drugs are getting stronger. It's, it's easier to get alcohol than, well, I don't know if it's easier to get alcohol than it used to be. I'm sure the fake IDs have, um, <laughs> Got have a gotten better. a little better since <laughs> I was a kid. I'm really excited uh, about our guest today. And I'm, I can't wait to see what comes of that conversation. You know, Robbie, you got a lot of experience here, too, talking with kids and parents and, you know, your drinking started at a young age. And
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think my experience is more so surrounding my awareness as opposed to how much I work with kids. I mean, I do work with kids, but I think where my passion lies is obviously having dealt with it as a kid and now being a parent. You know, mm-hmm. those two things coupled together yeah. is you know, it really can create some anxiety as a parent. And so there's this, uh, need for answers. And I think every parent can feel that whether they've experienced or not, they, they, consistently come to me or you or us and say, what do we tell them? What do we do? What do we do? And it's all kind of a probability thing. It's how can we lessen the risk? Because the risk is always there. There's always external factors. There's always the probability of something like this happening to a kid or or starting early. You know, my answers to those questions, you know, they vary. Honestly, it is circumstantial to a degree, but I think there are guidelines as to what to talk about. I think honesty and transparency are are huge. Um I think brushing things under a rug or hiding them under a rug just to preserve the safety, you know, the physical and emotional safety of kids is is sometimes a disservice and and it, and it leaves the decision up to the kid. And sometimes you're looking at a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old. I mean, yeah. what kind of decisions are they making, you know, especially ill-informed decisions. So that's, uh that's really where it lies. And then of course, I always go into you know the lead by example thing and, and that's right. always a hard one to hear from parents because you know we, we have lived our lives or, or are living our lives and we think we have a grip and, and we want to be good parents. And sometimes that makes it even harder to look at ourselves. The do as I say, not as I do <laughs> tactic. Uh,
1: I'm an adult and I get to, and you're a child and you don't. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: It just doesn't work. And, and so, you know, when I, <laughs> that's always the hardest answer when a parent asks me. Like, well, what do I say? What do I do? I'm like, well, um, how much are you drinking? <laughs> <laughs> maybe
1: we're I'll not here to talk about that. <laughs> right. We're not talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was trying to kind of rack my brain about what it looked like growing up as far as alcohol exposure, you know, what what the conversations were like at home, what my first experience with alcohol was. And I think because of the cultures, I grew up majority of the time in Europe before I moved to the U.S., kind of mid-teens, and... It was just always around, and so there was no kind of first impression of alcohol that I really remember strongly. It was just always there, and everyone around me who was older than me drank, and... It was an open conversation, and I think that's the piece, Robbie, that you alluded to. It was never swept under the rug. If someone was feeling rough the next day, it was very clear to me, and it was spoken out loud, that that was because they drank too much and alcohol is bad for your body. And there was no secret around that. There was no trying to pretend it was something else. It was very much, you know, I drank too much. I'm feeling rough. I can't do what I need to do today because of it. That was really dumb. I'm not going to do that again kind of stuff. And you know, until tonight, (laughs) until later. (laughs) And what I saw was, you know, moderate drinking kind of in my household and, and around me. And I try to think back to maybe some of the, the earliest exposure that I had as far as consuming alcohol. And it was, you know, trying dad, can I try your beer, you know, at dinner or whatever. And him going, sure, you'll hate it. You know, you can take a sip and I will, wow, it's so gross. How do you drink that? And, (laughs) You know, and he's like, exactly. And, you know, do you have questions about it? And like, you know, what's the curiosity and and that kind of thing. And just being able to talk openly about it and it not be taboo or reserved And that was the thing that I always felt helped me was it it didn't seem like something that was reserved for the adults that I couldn't talk about or touch because that would have made it way more enticing. Right. (laughs) It was, sure, you can try it. And every time it was, that is so gross.
0: Yeah. You got to learn to like it. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I remember hearing, you know, friends say things like that, like it's an acquired taste. And, you know, I hear as you get older, you start to like it. And I didn't hear things like that in my household. It wasn't, oh, well, once you turn 21, you'll really like alcohol Mm -hmm. or you'll learn to like it. It was just, if you don't like it, don't drink it. Yeah. You know, and very matter of fact. And I think some of that is cultural, but I just, I think that the, the open conversation around it helped made not feel like it was something it wasn't a dare yeah right yeah like a challenge to try to figure out how to drink and then when I did drink as a teenager probably what 16 17 was very open with my parents about when that was happening not taking the car that night you know and and I guess what your parents want as far as responsible drinking, like ideally what my future 16 year old would do is be really honest about that happening. And the one thing as a professional that I think was likely missing from that conversation was the risk of early exposure on the brain. Mm. And that was a piece that, you know, we just didn't talk about. And, and I don't know that, you know, my family would have even been aware of some of the things that I'm aware of as a professional in the field. So just being able to talk about that risk and that partnered with, if there was family history of alcoholism or addiction or any type of kind of predisposition, I didn't know about it. And those were probably kind of two big risk areas that I would talk to parents of clients now about, you know, do you have a family history of this thing? Have Mm -hmm. they seen you know, problematic drinking or high risk drinking kind of in their environment? What do they know about alcohol? And also, do you know what the impact of alcohol is on a young brain? And do you know how much more dangerous it is on a young brain versus a developed brain?
0: Yeah. Oh,
1: by the way, (laughs) your brain isn't developed until you're about my age at 29, (laughs) right? right? So it's not, it's safe once you're 18. It's, really understanding it's not about a legal limit, it's not about a legal age, it's about the direct impact of the neurobiology and the changes that happen in there. Right. So that probably was the, the kind of missing piece that I would add in now when I talk to parents or clients about that. And Patrick, you deal with this almost yeah. daily with youth, so what's yeah. your kind of take on that? I
2: mean, I from my own personal experience, those conversations d- didn't happen. I mean, they may have happened, but I didn't remember them. Um, growing up. I mean, my my family owned, owned and still owns one of the oldest wine shops in Charlotte. So like drinking was part of our family culture. Fortunately, I mean, I, I don't know if this is good or bad, but my uh, most of my my family members that do drink regularly, um, you know, I never saw any angry outbursts. We didn't have fights. It was like yeah. everybody drank a lot, but everybody had a good time and it didn't you know, from from my lens growing up, there was n- nothing about alcohol use ever scared me. Because of that fact, it was never really talked about, and it was just kind of accepted, you know, this is what we do, this is kind of like, you know, it enhances, enhances our life from a enjoyment standpoint, and, yeah. um, you know, we get up and we go to work, and everything's fine, and, and that was that. So I, I never... I never had any exposure to any kind of negative effects of alcohol growing up, or at least that I can remember. And I remember my grandmother, part Ukrainian, um, and she would drink, and and she was retired, obviously, by the time I was growing up, and I used to spend some time over there, and, and she would garden like pretty much all day. She was always mm. out in her garden, and she would sip on Budweiser's, throughout the day she'd probably drink i mean she was like four foot five like you know (laughs) 75 pounds 80 pounds and she would she would get a budweiser out of the fridge she'd pour it into like a little styrofoam hardy's coffee cup (laughs) and she would and she would sip you know it'd take her like four or five hours to finish one beer while she was out in the garden and i remember she would you know she'd be like hey you want to sip and and i'd take a little sip and i'd you know, it obviously didn't have any effect on me, uh, but I never, you know, felt like I never had that like, you know, this yeah. doesn't, it just was like, ah, oh, whatever. But then my first experience with, with actually drinking alcohol, I remember this, um, vividly because I was terrified. I wasn't terrified of what the alcohol was going to do to me because I didn't, you know, I didn't have any experience seeing anything negative. I was terrified of getting caught. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I mean, and, and the, the peer pressure is what ended up getting me to drink. It was, you know, I was with a group of friends. I knew they had been doing it, you know, a couple previous weekends and, you know, it was just kind of there. Nobody ever really pressured me to do it, but it got to the point to where like the third week, third or fourth weekend that my little friend group was drinking, you know? mustered up the courage and <laughs> cracked one of those things and and then, you know, once I got that first one in me, it was like it was over. How old were you? 7th grade. Hmm. So 12, 13 maybe. Yeah, um, very young and I was small. Um, so the, you know, it didn't take much to to get me intoxicated. Little uh, fellow. Yeah, little little guy. <laughs> but uh, one of the things around you know those experiences that I remember is that nobody knew what we were doing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it wasn't until, you know, it wasn't until probably, you know, 2 years later and we were drinking every weekend pretty much mm-hmm. and and you know, 2 years later I remember I was uh, I was, you know, I was living with my dad. Um and I had some buddies over, and we had some beer, and he was asleep, and we, you know, cracked a, we were drinking, and uh, and he like woke up in the middle of the night to to pee and came out, and we were hammered, and he didn't know how to respond, um, and was kind of he like grabbed all our beer and like put it in a in a garbage bag, and then he was like, oh, well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about this in the morning. <laughs> and uh and i remember he he like went into the kitchen and i didn't hear him open the beers and pour them out but he 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 hit him he hit him in the oven <laughs> and he goes and he goes he goes back to bed and we went and got can him, can't him, out get of him the there <laughs> yeah we went and got him and got him out of the oven and kept drinking um but I, you know what, I mean, I don't even remember what that conversation was the next morning. It was like, can't do that ever again. Yeah. Or like, you know, a little slap on the wrist. I feel like a lot of a lot of families, you know, react the same way. It's like, what do we do? Yeah, like, do how we do get? we control this? Like, yeah. we can't lock our kids in the closet.
0: As far as my experience growing up, you know, it's similar and it's different. Obviously, it's like I said before, it's very circumstantial, you know my parents did the best they knew and you know early on in life there was no huge red flags i mean of course in hindsight you can look back and pick out a few things but what really happened to us was some consequences you know in particular and and <sighs> this is a hard thing to talk about so when we when i was in 4th grade i have an older brother he was in a car crash he was in a drinking car crash uh his friend was driving Friend was driving, uh, and he lost his life. And, you know, prior to that, my family was was fairly normal when it came to alcohol. My dad drank, and he drank every night, but he was very functioning. There were no consequences to speak of until the car crash. And so once the car crash occurred, then there became this, I don't want to call it brush it under the rug, but it was an absolutely downplay of why how, what we should learn from it, you know, yeah. there was no discussion around it, specifically to me as a fourth grader. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't know what was going on. I do not m- blame my parents for this. Again, they did the best they knew. But looking back, you know, that was a, a pivotal moment mm-hmm. in my experience with alcohol. Interestingly, as soon as it happened... I had this big declaration that I was never going to drink alcohol. Yeah. You know, because of that. And so I knew it was a result I knew it was a drunk driving accident. And I had heard that that phrase before in dare and and just say no and all those kinds of programs. So the initial reaction was, "Ooh, I'm never going to do that. It took someone's life. It almost took my brother's life. You know, I'm never going to do that." Well, I did it a year later. Yeah. You know, and so I don't know what that means. I, I can pick it apart all day long, and I probably have for about twenty years now. <laughs> uh, but that's not fair. That's not fair to my parents, and it's not fair, you know, to to really act like there was some black and white solution. It, right. it, it really alludes to what we're talking about, where it's a probability thing, and you just got to do the best you can, and have these conversations that we're talking about. Don't brush it aside. Don't cover it up. Yeah. Don't try to protect everybody's emotions and, and especially a younger kid. Like, I, I mean, yeah. I get the value in that and I get the strategy, but there's got to be a balance with with some honesty.
1: I know we've got Chris Heron today and just I'm, I'm excited to hear kind of what his take on all of this is and how just how to begin addressing this with our younger folks, how do we build all of that up during the years where they're exposed to substances so that maybe at least they can have it alongside yeah, experimentation? Totally. Like, can we at least make the the social and emotional learning piece more robust so that they have options of coping skills, not just defaults, not autopilots?
0: Yep. I can't wait to hear Chris talk on this because he he's obviously a little bit ahead of the game and in, in, in his strategies with his uh, you know Heron Projects and and, and those mm-hmm. entities that he's founded, but the awareness, awareness, awareness. Yeah. Yeah. You know you can't know too much. I'm really excited for you know our listeners that don't know who Chris
2: is, or have never seen the first day or his other documentary Unguarded, um, or really know about his story and what what he does. It, I'm hoping that this is going to expose some people to um, everything that already exists, and they'll be able to utilize those resources and. And you know, help help people educate themselves and start having these conversations with their kids. Yeah, I was actually first introduced to him probably six or seven years ago. I was actually with a kid that I sponsored in AA for a while, and I was on a trip to New York to go meet his family. I, I walked in their house. We had dinner. They were like welcoming, and then and then my buddy's dad said, "Hey guys, I I want to." I want want you guys to watch this thing on ESPN mm-hmm. and uh, you're, you're gonna love it <laughs> <laughs> and I, and we went downstairs into their basement they lived in Long Island and uh, we went down to their basement and, and he was like all excited and set the TV up and he turned on this this ESPN 30 for 30 mm-hmm. called unguarded and it was about Chris Chris's story and I had known who I had known, you know, Chris as a basketball player, and I vaguely remembered him, but be, just because you know, during the time that he was, that he was, you know, in the NBA, um, and in college was like during the heights of throes of my alcoholism and addiction, mm-hmm. I wasn't paying that much attention. I mean, it, it, you know, he was a McDonald's All-American, high school basketball star. Uh, Fall River, Massachusetts, was you know on the cover of Sports Illustrated. He uh, ended up going to Boston College and 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 having to leave there because of um, because of some drug use, and then and then played at Fresno State, and then was drafted. He was the 33rd pick in the nba draft by the denver nuggets played for the boston celtics played overseas in a bunch of different leagues and you know he he ended up getting sober uh, about 12 years ago and he founded an organization called the heron project it's a national nonprofit organization they provide treatment navigation everything that they do is free um family family education recovery coaching treatment scholarships Mm -hmm. Uh, it's just it's an amazing organization and I have been lucky enough to be on their clinical
0: team for the last four years. While I can't wait to thank Chris for for agreeing to participate in this, I also want to thank you, Patrick, for bringing him here. Mm-hmm. So I loved hearing the story of how you met him and how it just, the stars aligned with you guys. And, and I just want to thank you for bringing him in. So let's get Chris on the horn. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for being here. We are, lack of better terms, honored to have you here. I grew up very similar to you. I, I you know, I was a big ball player. It was my life, but I was also very involved in, you know, the 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 social and the and the drinking and the partying scene. You know, took my career away a lot earlier than than yours. But I I remember you, man. I remember. Watching you, McDonald's All-American, I mean, I, wa- I idolized you back then. And, and what's cool for me now is, you know, fast forward 25 years, and I idolize you now. <laughs> Full circle, brother. The first question I want to ask, how it refers to kind of the theme of our podcast is the normalization of alcohol. And, and I would love to hear from you what it was like growing up in Fall River and, and what the drinking culture was like there from a kind of normalization perspective.
3: You know, it was, it was no doubt part of the culture. Um, you know, some people call it rite of passage. I call it, you know, just complete dysfunction. You know, the fact that you had 15 year olds hanging out in bar rooms, you know, just, there's nothing normal to that. I grew up in a house that suffered from alcoholism. I was well aware of, you know, the danger and, and the effects of it. Um, I remember praying at night that my father would quit one day, and I remember the first time I drank his beer. In recovery, you do so much reflection, and, and you know, looking back on that moment, what a tragic moment, you know, mm-hmm. to be a 13-year-old kid uh, who suffered so much because of his father's Miller Lite, and, you know, at 13 years old, I stopped partying on the, on the beer that kind of broke, broke our family apart. So, yeah, it, it was definitely normalized. It was definitely part of the culture. I think in Fall River, it was probably a little more than most. Like I said, uh, you know, it wasn't, you know, abnormal to be 17, 18, 19 years old, hanging out in barrooms. you know, and that's what I try to say to parents today. I, I think that's the scariest thing about addiction. It's the scariest thing about alcoholism. Nobody knows who's going to suffer from it. Right. You just, nobody knows. And, you know, Bill Reynolds wrote a book about me when I was in high school called four of a dreams. And Bill Reynolds is a, 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 a renowned writer, you know, 15, 16 published books. And he followed me for a year in hindsight, looking back, he would say, I wouldn't identify you as having a problem. Just normal. Just, yeah, it was just, you know, nobody knew.
1: What do you think kind of looking back on those days, what could have been said or shared with you as a child or as a teenager that would have stuck just about alcohol use, you know, just, Hey, here are the effects. Here's what to look out for. This is what it does. This is when, you know, it's gotten risky. Like, what would you ideally have heard?
3: I don't know if there's anything that I could have heard. I think where we've dropped the ball is in education. Um, I I think uh, you know, the fact that wellness is not a core class in our, ev- in, in our kids' school system is just unbelievably bizarre to me. The fact that we have so much, you know, with technology and social anxiety and substance use distor- disorder and mental health, and yet wellness isn't a core class. Um, I think what could have been done is learning coping skills, life skills, basically around emotional health and wellness. When I was in, when I was a kid, you know, the first time I was really introduced to any conversation about drugs or alcohol, um, was probably when I was like 15 years old in a health class. Yeah. I was already past that. I had way too much to talk about, you know, to bring that up in health class. So I, I think we've done such a poor job at providing platforms for children to have open discussion and, and, and to feel that they can share, um, some of their struggle uh, uh, in their adolescent years and in their teenage years.
0: I, I love this topic because it always reverts back to education. Like you, I, I in hindsight, I look back and I do a lot of digging into my past and I remember folding the, the page of my health book where there was a picture of weed and just looking at that weed thinking, <laughs> oh man, that stuff's awesome. I mean, it's just the opposite effect of what the class was supposed to be like.
3: <laughs> right. I mean, at 15 years old, it's awkward, right? I mean, that's why, uh, like, if I walk into a middle school and I do my presentation, the kids are so engaged. Mm. They are way more emotional than high schoolers. And if you come to one of my presentations and the high school and middle school are mixed, 95% of the questions come from middle school kids. Mm. Yeah, (laughs) Because they don't, they don't really have it in their, in their brain yet that, you know, it's not cool to raise their hands. It's not cool to talk about it. Right. Um, so, so that's where we've, it, to me is, is the lack of a platform, the lack of education, the lack of, nobody told me when I was in high school or middle school that, you know, the probability of me suffering from alcoholism is, is much greater because of, of the genetics and, and, and my family. Um, and the struggle that they've had uh, for generations. Right. I-, I wasn't aware of that.
2: Right. Yeah. We were, we were, we were just talking about that. I got to hear you speak, you know, a few weeks ago to both the students and the parents. Mm. And, like, and, I, and I've heard, I've heard you talk to both before, but I think, you know, this was probably the third, third or fourth time that I've that I've heard you speak to the parents. And for some reason that always seems to like hit me, hit me more is, is the conversations that you have, um, with the parents of the students that you talk to, like, can, can you kind of describe to our listeners and to Robbie and Sam, some of the things you, you say during that presentation or some of the ways that you address parents around their own alcohol use and how that impacts their kids. And like, and and another thing too, that, that I thought was really cool. And sorry, this is a loaded question, can you share some of the reactions that you get <laughs> from mm. parents and some of the objections that that they bring up you know doing during the the Q&A sections of your talks
3: you know i mean some of the, the you know the discussion points it, it it's again it's kind of what we opened with right is that uh you know nobody knows who's going to suffer from it and you know when it comes to alcoholism when it comes to substance use um we focus on the worst day and we forget the first day, you know, we want to show pictures of alcoholics. We want to show pictures of bums on the street corners, but we don't show them how they look when they were 12 years old. Yeah. And it's really hard. I think we've gone so wrong over the years of showing the worst day, because what 14 year old kid can identify with someone who's in stage four alcoholism? Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I think, we've, we've done such a poor job at, at presenting the whole spectrum. Um, you know, and, and other topics are, you know, that, you know, listen, I have a, I have a 19 year old daughter and I have a 21 year old son and I could not imagine when my daughter was 15 years old saying you and your girlfriends who I've known since they were five, uh, go get drunk in the our basement. Yeah. Like, it's, that's just creepy to me. Yeah.
2: How do, how do you talk to them about about drinking or how did you, you know, from the time that your kids were, you know, that age? What were the kind what were the types of conversations that you that you had with them? And I know you share that some during yeah. you know, when you talk to parents, but I I, lo- I love I love that too.
3: I've been very fortunate as a parent, right? Christopher twenty one and Samantha nineteen, um, both have not drank alcohol in their life. Both both have not experimented with marijuana. But where I think parents go wrong, right? I think when kids come home under the influence, it's immediately, who are you with? Where did you get it? How much did you do? What did you do? And and, and the parents never ask why. Why? Yeah. Yeah. The parent never sits down at their little girl who's 16 years old, looks him in the eyes and say, Why did you, you know, why did you have to change yourself tonight? in order to feel like you're fitting in or having fun. Like, and, and that's where I think there's been such a lack of emphasis. And I say this to the parents on social wellness, right? That, you know, oh, it's great that Chris was a McDonald's All-American. It's great that Chris could score 2000 plus points in high school and win national championships and get a division one scholarship. But the reality is I couldn't hang out on a Friday night with 10 kids I've known my whole life without getting wasted. And that's sad.
0: Yeah. Probably like you get asked all the time by parents, what do we say to our kids? How do we, you know, how do we avoid this? Da 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 da. da. And and often I say not what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times I say lead by example or thinking like, lead by example. And do as I say, not as I do doesn't work. You know, to your point, you know, a lot of times parents just they don't want to look at themselves. And yeah. so the the question of why potentially they don't want to know that answer
3: of course it's 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 you know it's the ultimate deflection they don't they don't want their child to look at them and say well maybe you have a part of my why
0: right you
3: you know but but also unfortunately i think parents have done a poor job of communicating to their children that that middle school and high school can be very difficult yeah um You know, there's so many parents that want to forget what their struggle was like in middle school and how it felt for them to be in high school. So they just project to their children like high school and middle schools were the best years of my life. Right, Right. yep. Instead of saying, there was a time I was bullied. You know, there was a time that I felt, you know, I I, I didn't feel good enough or I felt behind my friends or not smart enough. And I think if we can communicate That with our children then then their own their own bar isn't so high
1: i think it's tough too if you if you're a parent and you actually drink for the exact same reasons as your adolescent then how do you address it right if i i'm a parent and i use it as a social lubricant I have more fun at Bible study. When I have three glasses of wine, I drank after a long day. Like, what am I supposed to tell my kid who goes, I don't know why I drank. It seemed like fun. Everyone else was doing it and I wanted to let loose or amplify the fun we were already having. It's like, yep, yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. And then where do you go? Right. So and it you, starts then, then they way, start
2: drinking together. Yeah. You know, so
1: it starts yeah. kind of with that conversation of exactly what you brought up. Why, why are you drinking? And, and then taking it a step further of like, and what else could you do?
3: Right. And I think for me, just from, from my, my own personal experience, right? I, like I've needed a social lubricant most of my life. Yeah. And now, you know, at 32 years old, I'm introduced to this world of recovery. And now I can dance with my wife.
1: Yeah. yeah.
3: I, you know, I can sit at a table and be completely present at a wedding. It gives me great comfort, but yet also pride that, um, you know, recovery has given me this ability to, to not need a social lubricant. Yeah.
0: Well, and that also allows you to lead by example.
3: Sure. Yeah. I mean, if my kids are at my, at a wedding and see their, their mom and dad having fun and dancing on a dance floor and they know they're both sober, you know, and Heather, Heather is not a drinker. Like, she's, she's not, she doesn't suffer from what I suffer from. Um, and that doesn't mean Heather doesn't, you know, my wife doesn't have a glass of wine here or there. So they kind of have both pictures, you know. They, they know mom can drink, but doesn't drink often um, or hardly ever. And dad, you know, he's, he's got a horrible relationship with alcohol. <laughs> but that's
1: right. what's so important. We don't important. want to know. That's what's important is that's what the that's kind of where this conversation is is for the folks that can take it or leave it what's been different right what about the the folks who have one glass of wine i mean for me i've shared on this podcast for our listeners i've there was two, a two year period in my early 20s where i chose not to drink and for the kind of remainder of the time i will have up to two drinks period. It's really infrequent, but it was really important to me to know that I could have fun without. It was really important to me. like I, There was a milestone of going to my best friend's bachelorette party and dancing with the girls and going out and doing all of that and being able to do that without the use of alcohol. I really wanted to know that I could have fun and that I wasn't a different person drinking or not drinking, or it wasn't allowing me, it wasn't unlocking any kind of gate for me that I couldn't access on my own. So I love what you're talking about, just starting at such a young age, looking at what can you do to access your emotions or to cope with them? What can you do to maneuver the difficulties of the awkwardness <laughs> of being a teenager?
3: And I, and I think the social lubricant often comes from insecurities, right? You know, self-esteem and, you know, the the uncomfortable you know, feeling you get in certain environments. And I think if we can educate our kids and talk about these things and practice these things at a young age, I think the less they'll need a social lubricant. And I think a lot of kids turn to drugs or alcohol at a young age for a social lubricant. Sadly, um, you know, we haven't practiced enough with them. We haven't given them enough education around it to, to have kind of another option. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully one day that will change.
0: The normalization of alcohol consumption is the issue. If we could normalize the feelings that you're talking about right now, where the majority of junior high middle aged, or middle middle school kids feel that's normal. They need to know that, that is, it is normal to feel weird
3: and <laughs> odd. And- you know, and I think, you know, and I say this to parents, and Patrick, was, we were talking about it earlier, that, you know, so many parents are so caught up in, children, in their children's academics and their athletics. And Monday through Friday, they hover over their homework. They'll email teachers. They'll ask for extra credit. They'll kick the bleachers at a game. They'll stand on the sidelines for soccer or lacrosse, but on Saturday nights, they're nowhere to be found. Mm -hmm.
1: And it's totally fine as long as they're performing academically, right? Which turns into adulthood as it's totally fine as long as they're functioning
3: at their job. Yeah. But it just begs the, to me, it's the question. Okay. Like you want your child to be really good academically. You want them to be really good athletically. Why wouldn't you challenge them in, in other areas like emotional wellness and social health. And, and that's where I think we've kind of just surrendered and, and maybe out of fear, we, they, we don't broach those topics um, because some people don't want the answers. Yeah.
1: Or if we don't have the competence ourselves as a parent to know how, how do we cope? We don't even know how we cope. Right. So how do we then pass it along to our children teach them how to do it in a healthy way and, and just start those conversations. Like you just don't start conversations. You, you don't know how to get into or how to end. So it's just a total avoidance of, Hey, what's going on with you?
2: You know, I don't want to keep this, this conversation totally on kids either. Cause I think, you know, we need to, we need to talk about adults too. And, and because really they're the ones that are going to have to make some significant shifts in order to, you know, be able to talk to their kids about this stuff and change their relationship with alcohol if they really want to, you know, influence their kids relationship with it. What are some of the conversations that you have with guests around, you know, alcohol or alcohol use if they're kind of like ambivalent or on the fence or like, you know, they may come there for some other type of substance use, but they're not ready to give up alcohol yet. Like what are, how do you guys kind of approach that? Because it's, Because I feel like it's different. You're taking more of a wellness approach to kind of crowd out the, you know, the the reasons to drink.
3: From my point of view, most people who come in here um, with a specific substance use disorder, they quickly come around to uh, their life. The people that love them are much better off if they stayed abstinent from everything. So, so very rarely at Heron Wellness do we have people come in for, say, you know, opiates. Um, but you know, plan on have reservations and plan on drinking after. You know, I think. Listen, is, this is we we don't want to shut. We don't shut anyone out, right? If if you have plans of drinking and yet, you know, you're here for 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 a different issue. Um, we want to stay connected and keep, you know, and keep empowering and encouraging and supporting, right? So it's, it's, uh, I don't judge anyone for their path to recovery. And that's why at Heron Wellness, we've, I've offered everything here. You know, we have AA, we have SMART, we have Refuge, we do uh, acupuncture, massage therapy, yoga, meditation, you know, the activities that are in place at this center, you know, the amount of activities we do, we have a personal trainer, you know, that works with them seven days a week. So you never know where they're going to find it. You know, what path for me, I can say, you know, it was it was my path has been the 12 steps. Right. I mean, that's 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 just what have has allowed me um, and introduced me to recovery. It's not going to be the path for everyone. And, and I wanted to, to, to have as many options as possible here at Heron Wellness.
1: I think that's awesome to just be able to look at all those different paths to recovery and know that, Hey, if someone gets healthier as a result, then it was the right path. Right. And Mm -hmm. I guess with our kind of target population and what we're looking at with more of the gray area drinkers, I mean, we are all professionals in the realm of helping people that struggle with substance use disorders. And I always have to kind of shift back to, what about the rest of the drinkers, right? What, how do you start a wellness conversation with someone who doesn't necessarily have problematic use, but just wants to explore their relationship with alcohol? Mm.
3: You know, I think we, you know, like at Heron Wellness, we'll identify kind of eight areas of their life and what, where they see and measure up of of where they're at. And, And oftentimes they'll identify like my drinking, has affected my, my relationships, uh, my, my finances, um, my, you know, my work life. Um, so, so if we can identify the effects that alcohol is having on some of our guests and, and introduce them and, and kind of make that transparent for them, they're more likely to want to explore the possibility of living a life without. I never want to be judgmental. Um, I just know that my wife who doesn't drink, like she's not a, she doesn't have an alcohol issue. Um, But let's be honest. I mean, she's 45 years old. If she goes out on a Friday night with her friends and has four glasses of wine, she's not going to be the best version of herself on, on Saturday.
1: Right. Right. Yeah.
3: Uh, You know, we have one life, you know, we get one, one crack at this and, you know, it's becoming the best version of you. And and if alcohol is part of that story for some people, that's that's your that's your choice. Um, I know I know. For me, there is no gray area.
0: Yeah, man, yeah. that's powerful. We frequently say things like, you know, that was a different time or or back then. You know, I mean, you think about when you grew up in Fall River. I mean, it, you know, now that it's th- this amount of time later, you look back and it's like, well, you know, it was different. There weren't, you know. You know, I know my dad was able to just barrel through hangovers, you know, he could function <laughs> a- until he couldn't, but he, but he did. And, and I had trouble with that, you know, with more and more people like you speaking out, traveling, reaching millions of people, podcasts like this, do you think we can, and are we creating a shift in how we're thinking about alcohol?
3: I think for me, it wasn't I think I started to make real impact, right? For the first four or five years, I went into high schools and I told my story. And I realized my story is is not enough. And once I started talking about, you know, self-esteem, self-worth, insecurities, uh, I think those are the conversations that we can attach alcohol to marijuana use to, I think that's where we can have great influence and impact. Once I, once I got away from my story and started telling more of the students story is when kids began to reach out and and ask for help or kind of dive in and do some self-reflection. You know, the first five years of my public speaking, I would get emails from kids about my story, not their story. Mm -hmm. And once I pivoted and shifted the way I did my presentation, they started reaching out and giving me their story. But there was just a a girl wrote an editorial uh, in the newspaper um, in Darien, Connecticut. It's a very affluent community. And this little girl wrote the editorial the other day. Her sister wrote an editorial on me four years ago. And her sister's now a junior at Cornell University. And her editorial piece that she did on my presentation at her high school uh, had great impact on me. But both sisters in their editorials touched on the fact that it wasn't so much the drugs and the alcohol that they could identify with. It was the feelings. Yeah. 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 It was the self-esteem, the self-worth, You know, the pressure, the social anxiety, the parental pressure, you know, living up to all of these uh, topics, they completely identified with. And that's, that's, I believe, you know, where this conversation and where, you know, as in terms of prevention and education, I think that's where it has to, has to shift to. Yeah,
2: for Mm. sure, man.
1: I love it. Just being able to look deeper. It's like put alcohol on the shelf, like let's stop getting tunnel vision on the substance itself. And what is it helping with? What is it medicating? Why are we using it? What else could we do? Let's expand mm. all of that. Yeah. It's awesome.
3: Discover your Why? Yeah. Yeah. In problems, right? Like you guys say, this is great for some people. Yeah. You know, not everybody has the same problems I have, but it doesn't mean, you know, I, I kind of take my recovery in a sense, like my, my athletics, right? Like if I can shoot 500 jumpers a day, then I can, I can put in that type of effort towards my recovery. And I think there's a lot of people out there that live in the gray area that are shooting only a hundred jumpers a day. Yeah. And, and they're not, you know, there's more if they want it that they could get out of life and, and not miss out on moments. I think the people in the gray area is how many moments have you missed out on? How many hours have you put into the gray area where you could have put those hours into the people that love you or you people that you love you know so i think those are the type of conversations that i've had with people who live in that gray area
1: what's awesome it shifts it from where are the problems how is it problematic which just creates defensiveness right versus what are the possibilities what could it look like instead how could it be and it's
2: such a better conversation and the probability for somebody to actually engage in something like that is so much higher yeah Thanks for being here, man.
3: No doubt, brother. Thank you. We really appreciate This was fun. It, this Thanks was for great. contributing. And yeah, having me.
2: Yeah, tell us how how we can get in touch with you or how, um, you know, where, where we can check you out.
3: Heron Project is, is such an amazing organization that, you know, has grown and lived way beyond my wildest dreams when, when it was started. You know, I think it's an unbelievable resource for families. Uh, it's an un- unbelievable resource for people looking for preventative tools and a community of of support, um, whether it's you or your family member. Heron Talks is is my speaking and Heron Wellness is, you know, where I'm at now and, you know, we have 24 people living here currently and you know, just trying to become the best version of themselves uh, is is what we're doing and so there's multiple places, Heron Project, Heron Wellness, Heron Talks. (laughs)
0: what do you guys think oh man (laughs) how good was that
1: it's so good i i love the conversation I, i love just finding new ways to recreate reinvent how do we do it better and just continue to move forward of like all right as a parent like what else what else can we talk about what else can we throw in How can we continue to move the conversation forward, even generationally, right? We always want to do it better than our parents did it and grandparents did it. And I think it's so cool to just look at where some of those pockets of opportunity are as a parent or as someone who interacts with adolescents. And one kind of disclaimer I just want to make is anytime we are talking about our own families, our own parents, or we are talking to or about parents, just making sure that everyone understands there is no right or wrong here there it's not healthy versus super unhealthy it's we're all doing the best we can with what we know and what we have it's just once you know more you can do more mm-hmm. and that's yeah. the conversation we're trying to kind of open up here yeah
0: yeah a lot of times it it, it may sound like you know experts are are looking down on the listeners and saying <laughs> here's what you're here's what you need to do differently well that that's not the intention. The intention is to inform, and we are informing ourselves yeah. equally yeah. during I, this. I feel
2: like the the gray area that we're kind of targeting with our our conversation is it's different than than the one Chris typically deals with because right. usually, in I mean, his conversations are. You know, a lot of the times, just because of his story, they're focused more or when he's coming into a school, it's like, okay, this guy's going to talk about drugs and alcohol Mm -hmm. and this is going to be a tough conversation. And a lot of the parents that I feel like come to hear him speak in the evenings when he does the presentation for the parents, they're not prepped for, Okay, this guy's going to talk about emotional and psychological wellness. They're probably to the point where they're coming there because they do have Serious concerns about their kids' use or their friends' use, and and they want to come get informed. So you know his conversation to the parents a lot of times, it's very frank and and straightforward. But it's more, you know, it's typically addressed towards people that have you know that are already in crisis yeah. or or close to it around their kids' substance use.
0: And I think we all identify this as and Chris does as well, that historically we've we dance around this subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and he is making it very clear that there's no if you wanna be effective, there's no dancing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, know, you gotta be direct. Yep. yep.
1: I think uh, surely well, I'm making the assumption that us three at least run into the same thing with parents, which is They want to do the best they can with this conversation. And sometimes that leads to their decision not to have it at all because they don't know how and they just don't want to screw it up.
2: If there's one thing for this episode that I can have our listeners hear and potentially act on, please go watch his documentary called The First Day. Oh, yeah. And watch it with your kids. And you can go, you can find it at the, I think it's the com, or, you know, just Google it's on Chris, Vim- Chris Heron right? First mm-hmm. Day. Yeah, you have to rent it on Vimeo. There's no other way to watch it. It's well worth it. But oh, if yeah. you are having difficulties in approaching this with your kids, it is the perfect icebreaker. Yeah. And all you have to do is sit down and watch it with your kids, and probably sixth, sixth, seventh grade on. I mean, all the way up into like you know early college years. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you're not going to watch it with your kid, like it's 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 worth watching. And it if you do have that ability to watch it with with your adolescent or young adult child um, or children, like it will start the conversation. Yeah. Like like
0: no doubt. Yeah. And the right way. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Just not being scared of that, leaning into it, and and knowing, you know, parents who are listening, you don't have to have the answers. If you're nervous that your kid's going to ask you about your use or they're going to ask certain questions about alcohol or what they should be doing instead, please just don't let that fear of not knowing the right answer keep you from entering the conversation in the first place. You know, the responsibility there is just equipping them with the tools and information, and look, if you don't have it, just make sure they get in front of someone or some resource yeah. that does.
2: Yeah. There's there's plenty of resources out there now. is nonprofit that I work with, mm-hmm. Heron Project, I mean, they have plenty of resources. They have family groups. Um, you know, you can even get on there and do a 15-minute consultation with a licensed clinician. F- yeah. And all of it's free. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, and, and confidential. Therapy is becoming... Kind of the, the buzzword recently, everything oh, yeah. that's going on, more and more people are, are seeking out those types of services. That's the perfect place to start.
0: You know what I love about Chris is, you know, especially in this podcast, there's obviously by nature a lot of talking, you know, where there's a lot of kind of problem solving and, and critical thinking and, and us sitting around trying to, you know, better, better the world essentially. <laughs> but... Chris is out there doing it, you know, Mm -hmm. and he is, I mean, three different entities that he's created are, are on the ground doing it. He is creating the change and it is just so respectable to watch, watch what he does. And it's, it's exactly what I want to do. I mean, I want to do what he does. I just, I'm not famous
1: <laughs> yet. <laughs> yet, <Yes. laughs>
0: but it's just—I uh, really, really loved having him on. Again, thank you, Patrick, for, for ha- you know utilizing that connection and getting him on here. It's just that was just extremely valuable, and I hope the listeners loved it. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit SAMSA.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit DilworthCenter.org. Or call 704-372-6969. Or visit the Blanchard or call 704 288 1097